When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest today is not known as a songwriter, but as a very melodic bass player whose parts are essential to the songs that they accompany. It's Bruce Thomas. You're right now hearing Radio Radio, the instrumentals being from Elvis Costello and the Attractions, this year's model, 1978, but remixed in 2021 with new vocals from Fito Paez for Spanish Model. We're going to be listening to several things that Bruce played bass on, starting with Blood Makes Noise by Suzanne Vega from 99.9 Degrees from 1992. Then rather than pick one attraction song, we're going to play clips from I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, Pump It Up, Clubland, and Every Day I Write the Book. And then a rarity from a 1980 Attractions album without Elvis Costello, Mad About the Wrong Boy. The song is La 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 Loved You. And then looking pre-Attractions to Bruce's band Quiver, the title track from their 1972 album Gone in the Morning, will conclude by listening to a cover tune, There is a Place, by Spencer Brown and Bruce Thomas from their 2018 album Back to the Start. Bruce has also written several books. We touch on those. For more information about his music and books, see brucethomas.co.uk. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, which has links to subscribe to the various places where you can hear the podcast, or just look up Nakedly Examined Music on your preferred podcast app. I would love if you'd leave a nice rating or review for the podcast while you're there. If you really like what's going on and want to support the effort, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you ad-free episodes and access to my thorough episode notes for all of my recent episodes. All right, so I will have played a little bit of Radio Radio just to orient folks from this year's Model 1978. Actually, I should ask you, so there was a new version where they re-released the whole album in Spanish. That's right, yeah. That's still you playing, right? They just overdubbed the new vocals? Yeah, they just changed the vocals and remixed everything, of course, but it's still the attractions. Yes, so we're going to, of course, talk some attractions, but we're going to start. You had picked long ago when we were planning this a few years ago, Blood Makes Noise by Suzanne Vega from her 1992 album, 99.9 Degrees. Just to give us an example, so we'll play this song in full and we'll look closely at the bass part if we can. So I'm asking listeners, listen to the bass part. Do you want to sort of introduce the setting for this of what it was like to record this with Suzanne Vega and Mitchell Froome, her then uh, spouse, I guess. They weren't spouses at that point. Mm. They were still flirting. <laughs> okay. They were working up to it. There's a few cheeky references to this year's model on that album. You may or may not have spotted them, but the baseline for Blood Makes Noise was actually brought to me by Mitchell Froome. It's a bad choice to ask me about constructing (laughs) bass lines because the main riff was brought to me by Mitchell. It's one of those things where you create new bass lines by using the rhythm of one and the notes of another, which we may touch on later. But if you listen to it, it's basically the same 
rhythmically the same bass line as I don't want to go to Chelsea, but Mitchell used the notes of How Many More Years, that Led Zeppelin song, which is a Howling Wolf kind of cover anyway. But if you put the notes of How Many More Years to the rhythm of I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, you end up with Blood Makes Noise for the main riff. I mean, I came up with the rest of the song, which is where the chords change and things. But Mitchell had a fairly good idea of a couple of the bass parts, actually. So um, I kind of went along with it. So you're saying this do 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 that that was what he came yeah I guess eventually as one of the variations you sort of go into straight ahead sixteenth notes briefly toward the end of the song right slowing that down to create the I want to say the verse thing but the verse doesn't really have bass you sort of come in answering the verse I'd call that the chorus sure myself that Things like that, you don't sit down and work that work out a part like that. It just flows naturally to do that. There's a Japanese furniture designer called Somebody Nibuchi, and he once said, you work out what you're going to do, and then you do it, or you just do it and work out what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> right? And then before we get into the mechanics of constructing bass parts, I have to say that most of my bass playing is do it and work out what I did. 
later sure. for the purpose of erudite interviews. But Bruce Lee said a good thing. You know, he said, when somebody throws a punch at you, you don't say, is that a karate punch? Is that a boxing punch? Is that a kung fu punch? You just get out the way of it. So it's kind of that. Some things don't necessarily bear analysis until after the event because constructing a musical line isn't necessarily an intellectual process. It's more visceral, isn't it? It's just you do it. And you can go, oh, I didn't realize I'd done that, which is what I can talk about to you now. What I realized later, I'd done kind of thing, but what I didn't initially set out to do, if that makes sense. I assume with an actual band that you're going to play live, there's a lot of back and forth. It's not that you just come up with the line and that's the line. Like it depends what the other folks are doing. But in this case, you know, was the rhythm track already in there? And it was just a matter of you were being slotted in to sort of replace a demo synth something. The thing is with the band, obviously, oftentimes we do a song on tour and then go in the studio and just play it live, more or less. And with a couple of overdubs, most of my sessions from that period, I tended to put the bass on last when the record was all, I might put a guide on or they might be presented with something with all the parts already on and vocals and everything. Because I like to acknowledge the vocals when I play you know, and leave the right spaces and play the right counterpoint and things. I tend to play counterpoint to the vocal line rather than any other instrument line. That's something I can tell you that I've realized in retrospect, you know. When I talked to Colin Moulding from XTC, he said he just insisted at every stage of the band that he must put bass on last because (laughs) he liked to have the entire canvas down and then really play something melodic. Whereas if you're approaching it as a rhythmic instrument, well, you'd probably want to go, you know, with the drums, live with the drums, preferably not last. But no, he's absolutely right. And I learned that when we were doing Imperial Bedroom with Jeff Emmerich. That's how Paul McCartney worked mm-hmm. from the obvious stuff onwards, from about Revolver onwards, when they had four track and things would be bounced and he'd have a track for the bass to go on last, which is why you get all those amazing bass outros on some of the 67 kind of material where the bass goes on a little foray. And I thought, yeah, yeah. And from that, from not with the attractions, but from session work onwards, that was my um, approach as well. So I can quite understand uh, because Colin Moulding and Graham maybe are a couple of people are often mentioned, you know, in the same paragraph as, as I am. So it makes sense. Well, and it's funny that, you know, that might be the last element that gets on, but I don't know, maybe it's just because I was a bass player originally. So that's what, if there's something there to focus on, if there's a bass part that is melodic, that is what I will sort of sing along with. Like that, that is the song. And of course, you, you know, you, you don't get writing credit because <laughs> the melody The chords are already written, even if it's the thing that is, you know, dancing with the vocal, as you say. If it's a one chord song, but it's got an incredible bass line, the songwriter gets it for saying E, and the bass player doesn't get credit for doing all the, you know, embellishments of and uh, writing basically a song within a song. There's a a transition where you play behind the beat a little bit to like, what are we going to do to take it down before the new thing starts. Were you playing the song all the way through? Were they punching in a lot? Were they combining 10 different takes? No, 
I think I played that pretty much in one take. Maybe I just heard it and I was treading water or something. Ah. But I think I was getting into dissonance at that point <laughs> as well. I mean, I did an album with Mitchell for um, a guy called Peter Case, who was in a band called The Plimsolls, right? And um, I remember I, w- I would actually play a note that was deliberately, that was either deliberately sharp or flat. And I did it in... Um, I did it in the track with Elvis, and he said, you're going to play that note, are you? And I said, yeah, it was appropriate to the song, you know. I digress. I mean, as you say, I was probably just thinking, where do we go next, you know? Well, let's get a couple more of those examples out of there. So for the early attraction stuff, rather than play a whole song, I just picked a couple tracks to play just bits of your riffs from I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea that you mentioned. And from yeah. uh, Pump It Up, at least. So from the 1978 Live at El Macombo, which I think in your book you were saying, maybe it was that gig or somewhere around there, you were saying like, that was the high point of the live unit, you know, that you were super tight at that point. I would say from that point, was that in 78, was it? Yes. Yeah. From 78 for about the next year, 18 months, I think we were pretty untouchable. There's a great gig if you want to look it up on YouTube, at um, the Casino de Paris. Oh, okay, that's Casino the one you were talking de Paris, about. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a, the third session, I think it's five or six songs, and it just kills. I looked at it and I thought, that's nothing to be ashamed of. That is pretty damn good, you know? Yeah, that period was we were pretty fearsome, I think. Well, I like this one partly because it's one of the most recent attractions releases, 2009, this 78 thing. And the bass is mixed very high. So for our purposes, let me just play the beginning of I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. This song is called I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. Do you recall anything about the composition of that? I mean, that's very, very distinctive. But I assume, like you were saying... I do, actually. I mean, obviously, you can hear we're going... On the backwards on the timeline, but it's blood make noise and makes noise. But mm-hmm. the, I later realized where that line came from. Now, when I was in a band called Quiver, we did a tour supporting The Who in about 71. And when The Who were absolutely at their peak, absolutely best shows I've ever seen in my life was The Who in 71. But they used to do My Generation, but unlike the single, it had an extended ending. In fact, I think it had a key change up to B, and there was obviously power chords, drums flailing all over the place, but John Entwistle started improvising. There was um, It's B minor A, I think, or B A is My Generation, and he did this little arpeggio riff song. And when we got the song, I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, which was the same two chords with an extra chord thrown in, I started just playing the riff that John Entwistle played on the outro to My Generation. So like a ready-made part, only the song was much slower when it was presented to us, so I kind of sped it up and everybody went with that. And um, basically, those arpeggios come from something I'd heard John Entwistle doing on the ending of My Generation. So just because it was the same chords. Well, the chorus is definitely not the same. Let's play for 111. I'll put in another clip here. I don't want to go to Chelsea. Oh, no. Does that move there? Even though I see 
in the movie I don't want to check your pulse I don't want nobody else I don't want to go to Chelsea I mean, maybe it's because there's no chord playing, at least during this time, but, you know, that you could put in that little blue note. Yeah, well, there's one of those in Pump It Up as well, isn't there? Uh, ah. Minor third to a, do a, do a, or a six to a flat seventh, isn't it? You know, do it, it's a, yeah. I think that just comes from R&B riffs in general, which I grew up on. I don't remember how the chorus bit comes about same as as blood makes noise yeah i get the body of the song and then the rest of it just seems to flow once you've got something to hang on to, hang your hat on you know well i guess in this case to sort of switch up the rhythm that you got that do 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 stop that you know just yeah you notice though it doesn't do 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 every time it goes do 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 it goes fd mm-hmm it alternates and i thought every time when i watch uh, some people doing covers on youtube i think have they listened did they get that change or not you know some people do some people don't some people assume it's the same all the way through but there are quite a few songs where i'll just switch a little part back to front for a bar just to see if anyone's listening well, and that's what even in Blood Makes Noise that you've got these just little gestures here and there that because it's basically two lines mm. and you could just play those or the whole track is so electronic sounding. Frankly, yeah. you could program those two lines, but exactly, yeah. you adding the little slides, you know, that, that you have this sort of gesture that keeps coming back where you're sliding up twice. Quite a lot when I've times when i've done sessions somebody's put a programmed bass on and they want a real bass it's because of that humanizing factor the little incidental the, the little slide or a hammer on or a slur or a push you know a slight variation that's what really lifts it you know not just five percent but fifty percent am i right that you sometimes play fretless but that is not your preferred acts or do you ever play you never fretless? I've, i only ever prayed fretless once oh okay <laughs> you know, the early 80s stuff by the time we get to club land and things that we're going to hear you know at least maybe it's just different bass effects rather than but it has more of that slimy slidey thing but you can do that without having a fretless it just doesn't sure let's play a little of pump it up here yeah to get those main riffs out so I used to start the song sometimes just playing on one note, just literally pumping one note to get the, and then the drums would come in and we get it really set the tempo. And very, very Neanderthal, you know, like give me some loving or one of those things. Do, 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 you know, that riff is another example of notes of one thing and the rhythm of another because. I think we were doing a cover version of The Price of Love, which is the Everly Brothers song. Roxy Music did it as well, I think, or Brian Ferry. It's the notes of Richard Helen the Voidoids, You've Got to Lose, which goes... Dum, ba, da, 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 dum, but... So it's that rhythm with the other notes. So I didn't want it to be a one-bar riff. 
because it just goes round people. So we've got as far as doing dunk, da, 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 and we've got a bit of space to fill. So I thought, what's the best riff ever written, which is You Really Got Me? So it was doing dun, da, 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 it's a hybrid of three things but then the chorus is one that not many people can get right and even forgot how to play it myself to be honest i will insert the chorus here but yes you're really flying up the neck there I'm not exactly sure what it what I'm doing there. It's just um, it just does itself. You could be arpeggiating. It's a do 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 do. It's that kind of like when the Who turn on their sequencer. Remember, Elvis's father was in a, a dance band, mm-hmm. Joe Lost Band, and their signature tune was the same as Glenn Miller's, which was in the mood, which goes do 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 do. So I think I was doing a subtle reference to that by going. I was trying to play in the mood, but it kind of didn't exactly fit. So it's another kind of half version of of in the mood and something else. But I think that was the general plan. You're making me want to hear a Devo version of in the mood because that's what, if you straighten oh, out. Did they do it? <laughs> no, no, right, no, no, no. Right. But but that's kind of what you're describing. Like just straighten the swing out. <laughs> yeah. You could sequence a good version of it, yeah. All right, so we got a couple examples out there. Any thoughts about sort of the order of operations in putting together one of these arrangements? Is it Elvis just comes in with the chords and then you just jam over it until it's good? Or is there something more? Yeah, can happen. But more famously, when we did Imperial Bedroom, we went away and rehearsed the songs and worked out arrangements for them. Then we went in the studio, we didn't use any of the arrangements. We changed everything spontaneously and even to the point of changing all the lyrics and the title of the song and everything. So it was like the famous axe, you know, with three new blades and two new handles. There's a sort of continuity there, but it's nothing to do with the original. So Tears Before Bedtime was like a 6-8 swing ballad, you know, ding, 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 ding. And it became this New Orleans thing, you know, like an Alan Toussaint type of arrangement. They all kind of underwent um, Beyond Belief is a good example because it was called something else when we rehearsed it and it was entirely different. And the day we recorded it in the studio, only me, Elvis and Steve turned up and Pete Thomas turned up late. I don't know what he's claimed his excuse was, but we did see him the day before in an altercation in the local pub where he'd had an argument with Paul Weller and got laid out on the deck by the mod father. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if he was feeling a bit sore or hungover, but when he came in, the arrangement to Beyond Belief had completely changed. We'd done it with a click track and he came in to play it and Elvis said to him, you're getting one shot at this, right? So he didn't know what was going on because it had all changed. That's why when you listen to Beyond Belief, you hear the drums just kind of marking time and putting in little cymbal punctuations and things like that until it actually gets to the outro where there's a drum fill and he joins in and it all takes off. 
which actually makes it a really good arrangement. But, you know, that's how it did. That didn't happen by design. That was circumstance dictated how that turned out, you know. Since we're talking about that era, so the couple that I had earmarked was, let's play a little bit of Clubland from Trust 1981. So I feel like that was the transition album from these early ones to your much more elaborate... From beat group to elder statesman. (laughs) Immediately. I mean, I guess, you know, when you think about Beatles timeline, you guys at least got to record a bunch of albums, you know, that's 10 albums in your initial time with them, you know, before 1987. Whereas, you know, I was reading about the cars and how, oh, by the time they get to their third album, Panorama, people are like, what is this? This is so different than the first album. But like, he was comparing it to, well, think that's from Love Me Do to Revolver, like in terms of years. (laughs) But you guys actually got to play as many songs as that, unlike, you know, 10 songs a year. Yeah, yeah. So instead of it being a duet between you and the vocal, this is like a quartet between two different keyboard parts and you and the vocal. Any thoughts about that coming together? Yeah, I was into thinking I was playing on a Steely Dan album at that point. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think I was wanting to do something like, there's even a little bass fill that goes, which is, I can't remember which Steely Dan song it is. I don't know if it's the Fez or one of those. It goes, it's in the intro of one of them and, I, and I, it's a deliberate absolutely deliberate reference but yeah i was just thought oh we've actually done something good <laughs> So much more traditional, like the early part there, but it's a nice counterpoint. There's a little instrumental break where the bass does, I do a little bent note in that, yeah. That's why I thought you said you were playing fretless at that point. Wow, 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 that you They're all bent strings that like you'll never be a man. There's a lot of string bending on that song, if you recall it. Sure. Yeah, anything like that is either hammered on or string bends, but not fretless. It would be very good intonation if it was playing fretless as well. <laughs> yeah. It is something to get used to, I guess. Let's stop for some sponsor talk. I want to thank our pretty new sponsor, BeatStars, the number one digital music marketplace to buy and sell beats. So whether you're just starting out in music, maybe you write some poetry, there are free tools online that you could use with BeatStars beats and samples to create something, even if you've never made a song before. Or, of course, if you're already a musician, I mean, Lil Nas X's Old Town Road That was made by a BeatStar producer, CJ's Whoopity, Soldier Boys, She Made a Clap, many, many other things you've heard on the radio. So there are millions of beats in every genre and style you can buy. Many of the beats are 
very, very low cost or even free. Now, also, if you're a musician looking for new ways to make income, BeatStars allows music creators to sell their products worldwide from beats, loops, sound kits to vocals, lyrics, graphic design, and video editing. And they offer music distribution to dozens of streaming platforms for only $19.99 a year for unlimited song releases. That compares very favorably to the other uh, companies that can help you release your music. BeatStars has helped pay out over $200 million in music sales to hundreds of thousands of musicians. Listeners can go to BeatStars.com slash N-E-M, that's capital N, capital E, capital M, to get started on BeatStars. BeatStars is free to use for beginners, and you can also get a one free month premium subscription to open your own virtual music store with the code N-E-M. So please help support this new sponsor to the show, BeatStars.com slash N-E-M, all capitalized. I also want to tell you about the Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead. You might think that the showerhead that came with your house or apartment or wigwam is just there. That's just what you get. Well, no, you could replace that thing to get a superior shower experience with a super easy installation. You don't need a plumber or anything. It just takes minutes. Nebbia is a high-tech company. It has former NASA, Tesla, and Apple engineers who were very passionate about saving water. There is a massive drought in the entire West Coast, at least. The Nebbia showerhead will use probably about half the water of your current showerhead, saving you lots of money. But you could also just ignore that and think of this as something to treat yourself to, to improve your life. All that time you spend coming up with melodies or thinking about wonderful new ideas or dwelling on whatever bullshit you dwell on in the shower because the felt water pressure is as strong or stronger than anything you've got going now, thanks to the technology of atomized droplets. I don't really know what that means, but it creates a very nice, steamy, spa-like shower experience. And with the Quattro, you can choose between four different sprays. So you got that spa spray, the classic Nebbia spray, or you have some especially hard spray mode. You've got the mode just for sensitive skin and pets. But really, all these are going to be strong enough to get shampoo out of even the thickest hair, for instance. The Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia is now having their best sale of the year only through December 2nd with 20% off all Nebbia products. No promo code needed. You don't want to miss it. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. Save 20% through December 2nd, or 10% after that with code NEM. Let me uh, jump forward two years to Punch the Clock, which I remember, I don't know, this was one of the first albums by the attractions I heard, and it was very much not representative of uh, what uh, was considered the classic stuff. But every day I write the book, one of the biggest songs off that, let's just play the intro of that. That does sound like the duet between you and the vocal. Was that one that the bass was written last? That's me being Bach. It's when I'd finally realized what an inversion is, you know, that you can play a, a triads, you can play root, third, fifth, and then you can alter one note and maybe play 
root minor third fifth, but it doesn't mean you're going from a major to a minor chord. It means that you're using a different root note. It means that the fifth might be the root note and the other two fit the triad, if you see. So that's going between, it's only changing one note, but it's going between two different chords. And that's what I understand Barker's doing with inversions and counterpoint and things. And then, of course, I think I kind of got carried away a, a few times with doing that once I'd worked out the trick, you know. But having said that, when we did that track, there was a Dave Robinson from Stiff Records, who was Jake Riviera's partner, when we first signed up with Elvis, was in the studio. He said, there's something wrong about that bass. That's completely wrong. And of course it is, because he just wanted the bread and butter vanilla bass part. But um, that part has been cited more often than any other as how to construct a bass line. Because he said, if you go through that song and play the root or root five like you would as a country player it's boring it is a song within a song as you say there's two melodies going on actually i think i discovered bark when we did accidents will happen because i've got a friend who's a classical composer in america his wife's an opera singer she didn't know anything about pop music and he played the bass part of accidents will happen he said who's that <laughs> and she said well that's bark so he told me, I said, well, that'll do me. His bark's worse than his bite. Ah. Yeah, that is really a movement machine. It starts getting busy at the end, yeah. It starts really... Yeah. And none of that's programmed, right? That's not the producer's... No, no, that's, you know, that's just what you were played, what yeah. you were all doing at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely played, yeah. That's funny. I mean, that it's 1983. Like, that's exactly the point where I mentioned the cars, you know, yeah. where Heartbeat City is not too far after that. And that jump from 1981 cars to 1984 car is like... A massive difference in terms of the technology used, where it seems like you guys had that movement in your sound, but without any of that, do you think of those albums as overproduced or? Elvis didn't like Punch the Clock. He thought it was overproduced. Yeah. He thought it was too glossy and transitory or of no lasting value. <laughs> All right. And before we set the attractions aside, <laughs> so was it the increasingly adventurous bass parts that you were sort of writing a song within a song was that part of the breakdown of the machine <laughs> you know no there was no musical conflict at all no actually it wasn't anything any of the cliches like me writing the book or me falling out with elvis it was to do with elvis and another band member and me not liking the way it was playing out and um all right i'm not going to make you go through that story again that no <laughs> you, well you, it's in it's it's in the book rough notes if anybody's that interested in finding out the true story you know there was never any musical in fact that was never said to me don't play that do this or anything i was just like he claimed that he never listened to the bass anyway which was just him being arch but the the only thing he ever said once as i said was that you're gonna play that note are you and i said yep <laughs> and that was it 
I was left to my own devices. I mean, I think maybe on the quiet, secretly, Nick Lowe had said to Elvis, he knows what he's doing, just don't, you know. But Pete Thomas certainly did. There's a story that Pete was a big fan of my former band Quiver when Pete was still a student and he'd come to see us and apparently Pete had said to Elvis, if you don't hire this guy, you're mad. So that's in the book anyway, but that's how it started. That was a big revelation from the book is I didn't realize that you were pretty much a decade older than the rest of the the guys that you have all this prehistory and that you no about four years old not really okay am i well uh... then older decade older than steve naive sure yeah but he was half a decade younger than the other t- so we bookended the two in the middle just that you were doing stuff in 1970 whereas for the rest of them like this was in musical terms it's a generation yeah we've talked about some of the hits and things but i wanted to throw a whole tune here from the attractions mad about the wrong boy 1980 album it's a short song it's two minutes long uh la 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 loved you was one of the ones so this is actually you singing right no it was pete thomas singing okay but i I thought you wrote the lyrics not guilty but did you write the lyrics on this i thought no nothing to do with it and it's tim rennick playing the guitar solo at the end tim rennick from quiver which song on the album i thought i you know i was researching this years ago when we were planning this but i thought i had picked one that was is there one that you do sing or or you just stay out of that okay no or that you wrote the lyrics okay (laughs) no no
So yes, Tim Riddick that you played on the Al Stewart albums with, right? Yeah, Al Stewart and with Quiver and the Sutherland Brothers, and and we did lots of we did lots of sessions together. Actually, we were the kind of go-to folk rock players at the time, you know. Any sort of thought about you know that this was an attempt to? Were you trying to have a independent? No. I didn't want to do it. I didn't. It was Jake was trying to do it. And I think it was instigated as a way to start actually putting a wedge in between as not being a four piece band, but a three piece band with a front man and then gradually pushing, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it was actually a divide and rule move. I didn't want to do the thing at all. There were several projects mooted like that and I refused all of them. You know, like when Elvis did a, solo version of my funny valentine for some reason or other you know i thought he's got the long game in mind here he's going to do the uh, the same route that they all do you know robbie williams starts singing the songs of frank sinatra or they all want to be elder statesman being in a great band's not enough well so this was hardly the first you know i mentioned the al stewart albums i just listened to the two that, that you played on oh yeah it's not the first you know that those are plenty big bass parts on those if people want to hear you know more of you in a different setting those are yeah. just a great example you mentioned quiver so of course i hadn't heard any quiver before reading your book and talking about this i'm not going to put the whole thing of killer man because it's it's about 8 minutes long don't put the bass solo up for crying out loud that was the whole point it's t- it's terrible. I insisted on doing a bass solo, much to my eternal regret. And you've gone and dug it up. The second Quiver album's okay. That's gone in the morning. And I think that's probably the most representative Quiver track you could play. Yeah, so that's that also is almost, it's quite long. And it has about eight guitar solos before it sort of yeah, gets... Yeah, it's got several different feels and solo, you know, it's Grateful Dead time, isn't it? Different shifts in feel and tempo and... Right, 72, right? Right in the middle of the Prague, the height of the Prague era. And you were, you know, this seemed at least in the, if not Grateful Dead, the sort of cream, the blues Prague sort of thing. It was around the time of bands like Poco, wasn't it? And Buffalo mm-hmm. Springfield or something, or were they before that? The main thing we got away with was that it was quite good musicianship. I was just kind of getting the grip of playing, but Tim Rennick is a great guitar player and he's has his his resume will testify. Sing a voice. 
did you like get writing credit on the quiver tunes? Cause yeah, some of them. So that was the project, you know, that was not a session thing. That was like, no, it was a bona fide band. I mean, we played the first Glastonbury festival and things like that. And on the pyramid stage, and we did some major, major gigging because we shared Pink Floyd's manager, David Gilmore, and those boys are from Cambridge, as Tim Rennick was. And Tim and David Gilmore were, were buddies, and we were recommended to Steve O'Rourke. And so we used to go out as Pink Floyd's support band quite often, doing, you know, huge 150,000, you know, audience festivals and things like that. So I've, I've seen Pink Floyd many, many, many times, you know. And were you on their speed dial in 1986 or whenever they were? Well, it wasn't in that speed dial, but I was in their football team. All right. I had heard that they asked Colin Molding again, you know, to be, you know, to go on tour with them as the bass player when Roger Waters didn't want to do that. Were you, were you in the running for that? I was asked to do that. Yeah. But I thought they were, I thought it was a kid. <laughs> I guess you were still actually in the attractions at that point. So that was... uh, no, no, I got asked to, oh. um, to go with Pink Floyd when I'd left Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. Mm. And Roger was going to be like a front man and MC and everything. He wasn't leaving at that point, but I think it was the start of separation between Gilmore and Waters, which is always a fairly strained relationship as these things go. But uh, I know I was asked to join Pink Floyd and I thought, you know, I thought later, oh my God, I could have had 10 Ferraris (laughs) like Nick Mason. But the thing is, I later found, well, Guy Pratt plays with Pink Floyd, doesn't he? And he, even when Rick Wright left and rejoined Pink Floyd, he was only ever paid as a hired session sure. man. He was not a full band member again. So I got to think I might have got a Volkswagen Beetle out of it, but I don't think the fleet of Ferraris was... Um, I did think I'd turned down a $25 million gig for a while, but then I realized it was more like a $25 gig. Yes. I also read the book recently of one of the Latter-day Ramones that was in that situation that that's the IP is these four guys created it. And so as they are replaced, of course, they're not going to like just replace them and make them full members. No, They're going to be second class, you know, touring space fillers. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're glad of having a ready made band and it works for you, just playing our hits and getting a wage, then fine. But you're not a co-creator or anything. No. Were there any other bands like that? Like what uh, I was asked to join? Yeah, like one of the many squeeze bassists, or I guess they no Manfred Mann. Uh-huh. Different bands. Uh, there was one or two. The one gig I wanted was never offered to me, which was replacing John Entwistle. Might be a bit oh. presumptuous of a bit presumptuous of me, you may say, but I think I'd I'd have worked at it. <laughs> Well, and I guess there's an opening in Steely Dan now, unfortunately. Oh. I, I, no, I don't think I've got the chops for Donald Fagan. Uh-huh. I'd love to think I could do it, but no, those guys are, you know, they're probably readers and everything, you know. So you, there hasn't been any desire, like I know you did some stuff with the Pretenders as they were replacing people. Was there any sort of desire to like, I want to be in an actual band? Maybe not at this point in your life, but... I don't know. It's It's weird. I just drifted into other things. I mean, I've been doing quite a lot of sessions this year, funnily enough. You know, I've done about four or five. But the people involved, who who you would know of, and who are actually all American, but I've kind of on a non-disclosure thing because 
until they put their records out and schedule their whatever it is, their products, you know, I can't just go and preempt it and say, I played with some, you know, with Vin Skill or whatever. Sure. I didn't play with Vin Skill, but for an example. So I've got to leave it to those guys to make the move or not. I mean, they might say, good, what was that? And throw it on the cutting room floor. But anyway, I have done some sessions and my melodic sensibilities are still relatively intact. So, well, yeah, as long as those opportunities are still plentiful, like then you don't have to be tied down and go through the trouble of touring and all that stuff. Yeah, well, I I wouldn't mind. I might have one, one tour left in me, I guess, you know. My tastes are changing a bit. I mean, I quite like that. Um, have you heard of that British band Wet Leg? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's just like one note bass parts, but it's fantastic. I love it. You know, it's in the right spirit. I could happily do that. But then again, they're all kind of young millennials and hipsters and stuff. So I did actually get quite near to playing with Steely Dan because um, Elliot Randall was remaking the first steely dan album with different musicians and he'd replaced all the guitar solos with irish pipes hullen pipes and he's got <laughs> okay. tasmin archer to sing reeling in the ears and then there were pipes going like a irish jig sure and there was uh it was elliot randall and tasmin archer and it was bernard purdy and chuck rainey and the tape was at Tasmin Archer's studio when I was doing some overdubs for her. And I said, do me a favor, put that track up, mute Chuck Rainey, and let me put the bass part on. <laughs> so I got as far as playing Reeling in the Ears with Elliot Randall and Bernard Purdy on tape. I haven't got a copy of it, but it was very satisfying. Before I let you go, I need to have you plug your books so people can find you talking about Bruce Lee. <laughs> on many other podcasts. So we don't need to do that. We talked about Rough Notes, the 2000, 2014, 2016. Amazon is telling me 16, but I thought it was earlier. It's not that old. Somewhere. Okay. Think, yeah. And then is there a new one on the touring? There's a memoir called The Open Road, mm-hmm. which I did this year. It's got quite a few tales from the tour bus, but it's, be warned, it's got a few of a bit of a personal journey feel to it as well. So you're warned in advance. Well, yes, just that one of your Bruce Lee books is The Tao of Bruce Lee, that you're clearly getting into the philosophy, not just like, here is the life of Bruce Lee, which, you know. There's partly that. I mean, that's partly what I did, but I did one or two other things like go to Indian reservations and the things that people used to do, you know, back in the day and hang out with the with the Hopi Indians and go to different sorts of retreats and whatever, and you know, off the grid kind of thing and the accompanying insights that such activities give you. Yes. So developing a writing career, a great way to be artistic without having to leave the house and without having to leave. (laughs) That's what podcasting has been for me. So I'm not just, you know, trying to to be a road dog here. I'm happy to sit on a chair and talk about (laughs) anything I've done, but as, as regards doing it again, crikey. Well, and then I, I was not successful in listening to, Say a little about your uh, alternate ego as a creating dance music, which in your book you were oh, saying yeah, that yeah. you that so much of it is directly sort of recycled from other things. You know, that it's just a whole different oh, yeah. way of delivering music and standards of one of our software 
programs was called Recycle. You would just literally get a drum part and chop it up into a different order. You know, the James Brown stuff. And yeah, I did that with my nephew, who's a DJ, who's very up to speed on all the tech side of it. He couldn't play a musical instrument, so I could get things in tune and in time, and he could work out where we got the samples from and stuff like that. And and, and um, we had a thing going, which was sometimes we remixed current hits. We rejigged them. Sometimes we did originals, but the idea was they were done straight to vinyl for club DJs. So you would do a an addition of maybe a couple of thousand vinyl records to send to club DJs and you would sell 2,000 records at a fiver or something and then do another one. So there was never a huge thing, but there was a fairly quick turnover. We did it, but I remember sitting there one day saying, how many tracks have we got here? You know, because you would sometimes put on three basses and four mm-hmm. drums and five tambourines and six hi-hats so you get all that push-pull effect you know it's not just sounding like a loop going round there'd be variations in it that was one of the tricks and the ear candy and things and we had over 200 tracks going <laughs> you know was any of this actually inserting your bass parts i did bass on okay. a couple of them yeah. Okay, but not even a, as a rule. It's like it's, it's a fully optional thing. We did a track with a woman called Diane Charlemagne who sang with Moby on mm. his um, stuff. And we did a sort of, it was a proper sort of, well, not disco, what's it called? House now. It's disco, but it's house. Same thing. Sure, sure. And, um, <laughs> same tempo, 120 BPM. But it was good fun, really good fun. All the, all the filtering and all the, automated mixing, all the things he would have dreamed of being able to do, you know, went right through from stereo tape to 200 tracks on a laptop. So I thought I'd lead folks with it's the last thing that you released under your name. So Spencer Brown, it's accredited to Spencer Brown and Bruce Thomas. Is that just because he wanted, you know, that he wanted you to play it and he appreciated that? Or did you actually produce it? He was a guy contacted me on Facebook and sent me a couple of songs that he'd done. And I said, that's actually pretty good. Have you got any more? And he sent me a couple more. And he said, will you play on them? I said, yeah, but I could hear an album, basically, after he finished. He wrote a couple of tracks to order. And I got an idea for a concept, which is basically back to the start, which is like doing a retro pop album. Mm -hmm. And I went to his house for a weekend and put all the bass parts on and um it's okay so that album was called back to the start but i thought i would include since you linked to this during the pandemic the beatles cover that you did that closes the album there there's a place which I, we can hear how you interpreted that song that it's a little bit different in the bass line than when mccartney served yeah. up i believed yeah i'll get a little tune in at the end <laughs> well thanks so much for chatting this was this was a lot of fun that we finally got around to doing this all right, good. Yeah, well, it's pretty different because you're getting more into the musical aspect of it. So it's good. All right, here's There's a Place.
Thanks so much to Bruce. This was Long Cooking. To learn more about Bruce's work, see brucethomas.co.uk. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. I was a little late putting this out because of that. I have recorded three other interviews already with Simon Ratcliffe, best known for his work with Basement Jacks, then Esther Ballant, who, in addition to being a very plugged-in figure in New York City, has some well-known acting work starting with Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, all the way up through appearing as Louis C.K.'s Russian girlfriend in the show Louis. Finally, I just spoke to Pat Irwin, another New York City fixture, a guitarist-slash-keyboardist-slash-composer, had played back in the late 70s, early 80s, with Eight-Eyed Spy, then Ray Beats, then was in the touring lineup of the B-52s for several years, and is mostly known for his soundtrack work, having most recently done all the music for the revival of the show Dexter, as well as shows like Bored to Death, Nurse Jackie, Rocco's Modern Life, and others. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed to make sure you get all those interviews promptly when they come out. Or better yet, get them ad-free through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. All the cool kids are doing it. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep on musicin'. Not that's a nice idea.